Welcome to the boldness. My name's Phineas Mir. Joining me in the studio, as he normally does, is Raphael Kalev. Hello, Raphael. Yes, a rambling barologist. He's co-hosting the boldness with Finn Mir. That's right. And uh, apparently, we, we've got some good news, Raphael. We've got some really, really exciting news. I'm very pleased to announce that the boldness is now a station program of 3CR. And we will be looking to get a female presenter um, to join us in the studio as well. Uh, but unfortunately not for this show. Um, to, we, uh, I f- should m- mention that the boldness is all about g- grabbing your human rights, not just waiting for some well-meaning person to give them to you. What's going up on today's show, Raphael? We're talking disability, discrimination, deportation with Suresh Rajan. Yes, who is a human rights advocate from, uh, well, a human rights and disability advocate, really, um, amongst many other th- things. Um, now, before we introduce her, we should just mention that, or should just give a brief introduction and say that uh, the the uh, Australia signed the Human Rights and Internet National, uh, the Australia signed the Convention on the, the Rights of People with, with Disabilities uh, well, basically, when it almost when it started in two thousand and seven, and <clears throat> Suresh Rendon recently wrote for the the uh, publication the Stringer that he he asserts that Australia's stance on immig- immigration and people with disability is hypocritical. And uh, Suresh is, has been kind enough to join us all the way f- from Perth. Hello, Suresh. Hey, hi, Finn. How are you? And hi uh, to your co-host as well. Lovely to talk to you all. Um, now, 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 Suresh, um, what f- for people that that don't know what what is the con- what is the UN Convention on the, the rights of people with disabilities? But the UN Convention is actually, like any other UN Convention, it doesn't have the sanction of law. However, for all of those people that sign up to it, and there are a number of countries that will sign up to the various conventions, there are conventions that apply to how each of those state organizations, which is a country in itself, so it might be America, it might be the, US, it might be the UK, uh, and us, and so on, who sign up to these conventions will uh, treat people with disabilities. Now, this particular one that we're talking about is the UN Convention on the Rights of People with Disability. It's a convention that goes towards making sure that people with disability are accorded the same level of human rights that anyone else is. It's important because it's, it's, you know, it's important that we do have these conventions because they actually go to govern how the 
the government and the country will treat people with disabilities to make sure they get access to all of the services that they're entitled to, as well as making sure that the level of service that's provided and or the level of rights that they're entitled to is at the same level as anyone else who doesn't have a disability. So the convention is very much a, a, a I guess it's a code of behavior that is imposed on each of the state organizations that, that sign up to it, each of the states, uh, state countries that sign up to it. And as you quite rightly point out, Finn, we signed up to it in 2007, almost at the very start of when this convention was actually conceived. And so we're a very, very integral part of that whole uh, that community of people that signed up to make sure that people with disabilities are accorded the right, the rights that everyone else is entitled to as well. Now, how does that relate to? Uh, does that relate to the uh, immigration or the the uh, immigration of people with disabilities at all? Yeah, look, uh, that, that's a really contentious issue. On the one hand, we signed up to it, but what we did when we signed up to it was to say uh, it does not apply to issues of migration because we reserve the right, and this is the, the old John Howard line of, we reserve the right to make uh, to determine who comes to the country. Now, the Migration Act is then actually also uh, provided to be exempt from the Disability Discrimination Act. So on, at two levels, we uh, apply to sign up to a convention, but we say that convention doesn't apply to our migration issues. And then we also make sure that there is a clause in the Migration Act that says this act is not subject to the Disability Discrimination Act. Can I just explain briefly why we do that? Uh, and the, the reason is, um, back in the 1940s, we wanted to eliminate the uh, arrival of TB into this country. We wanted to make sure that TB did not come into this country, and the easiest way to do that was to say, if people have a health condition that is going to cost the taxpayer above a certain level of income, a certain level of expenditure, and back then it was set at $25,000, it's now grown to about $40,000, then uh, that person will not be given permanent residency unless the minister determines uh, it's going to be so. So that's the basis upon which we eliminate the Migration Act from having the convention apply to it or having the Disability Discrimination Act uh, applying to it. So your question is, uh, does it apply to migration uh, uh, issues? Clearly not, because the uh, government has actually opted the Migration Act out of the Convention and out of the Disability Discrimination Act. And that's what I find hypocritical, because we're signing up to say people are entitled to the same rights as anyone else, but not in these cases. Has there been, have there been any cases that you've either dealt with professionally or, or, or you know about where this hypocrisy has um, come to the fore? Yeah, look, uh, over the last couple of years, we've probably dealt with about 28 different cases of this nature. And, and the process is as follows. When 
be a personal pleasure. I'm dealing with another one uh, other than the one that I wrote about in the stringer the other day. I've got another one that I'm talking to now where the, the girl is uh, 12 years old uh, and she's been denied permanent residency or the family's been denied permanent residency because she is at... Uh, at the very mild level on the autism spectrum spectrum disorder, so so you know she's right at the very uh, very lowest level of the of that spectrum, and yet we're saying she's going to cost the taxpayer in excess of forty thousand dollars. Now we're not talking about forty thousand dollars per annum; we're talking about forty thousand dollars over the life of that child, which may be. You know, 70 or 80 years when you take a, a young child. So it's not going to be hard to come up with a figure of about, uh, uh, it's going to be in excess of $40,000 because there'll be schooling, there'll be uh, disability benefits, etc., etc., uh, treatment regimes, uh, and all of that which will contribute to that cost. So, yeah, over the last couple of years, I've dealt with about 28 of them. We've been successful in getting the minister to overturn Quite a number of them, I would probably say an estimate of about 20 to 24 of them have been overturned by the minister to allow the permanent residency. And so that hypocrisy has been highlighted and the minister has then overturned that decision of the department. But it does require a fairly sustained process of advocacy going through the process of getting uh, signatures on petitions and pushing the minister to do it with a great deal of lobbying and a great deal of hard work and a lot of time invested in trying to do this. Now, you've, just to, I guess, highlight the point you've just made, you, you've been dealing with a, a case currently with a yeah. Indian, uh, an Indian family or, uh, in, in particular an 80-year-old an eighty-year-old mother and uh, and her autistic daughter, who, um, who this who I guess what we've been talking about applies to because they're they're at risk of being deported back to India on the grounds that they will be a burden to the taxpayer. And for very very right, you know the the the, the whole um, concept of treating people people with disability or people with a health condition as being a burden to the taxpayers abhorrent from every perspective. It, it minimizes this person from being a human being into being a number that goes to look at how much it's going to cost the taxpayer. So we remove the humanity of people straight away there. So in, in her particular case, what we have is the mother, as you quite rightly point out, is 80 years old. So Florence has come here because the rest of her family is living in Melbourne, So we're in, in Australia generally. So most of them in Melbourne, a couple in Sydney, and one in Adelaide. So we've got the whole family here. All her children are here, bar the youngest child who is 50 years old, who is back in India with her. They've come here applied for a permanent residency visa, they've been granted a bridging visa, but now they've been told that they can't have uh, residency here because that youngest uh, child, the 50-year-old, has autism and will be a burden to the taxpayer. Now, the issues are this. She has five, five or six siblings, five or six brothers and sisters, who have guaranteed that they will meet any cost that's involved in making sure that she's entitled to a good life here. 
But the likelihood of uh, what's going to happen if she goes back to India is that she's going to be institutionalized. So if we have mom who's 80, mom's really at that stage where she's probably going to be finding it hard to help to allow the youngest daughter to have the life that she wants to, and she will need to institutionalize this girl. What is the appropriateness of institutionalizing a child with autism, a person with autism? It is just completely unacceptable, and that's where we again are breaching the convention in not making sure that this person with disability is accorded the right to live in the community with the, all the dignity that goes with living in the community. And I think you also made the point in, in your article that the yes. that the family, if uh, you you say that the the, the burden to the taxpayer, well, the in actual fact the 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 reverse is true. It will actually be an impost on the taxpayer because you're taking out people that that currently reside here that that work here that would have to go back to India and 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 uh, care care for care for their sibling. And this also goes to all those issues around the cultural value of family, the cultural nature of family. Uh, you know, we're talking about a, a family that's from the Indian culture, and you know, clearly I can identify that uh, with that because that's my own culture. In our culture, it would be completely unacceptable to uh, place someone in an institution of any kind. We would look at the rest of the family being the ones that will provide that care. So what the family has said is that if the youngest uh, uh, daughter goes back to India, each of them will take a month off or a couple of months off from their workplaces at highly professional uh, positions, high levels of government, high levels of uh, 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 private enterprise, etc. And those they will then go to India and look after their sister for a two-month period. So for the two-month period, we are not having their taxes paid here and their, um, their contribution to the economy is just taken out of it and now taken away to India. So the burden to the taxpayer, in fact, is actually going to be higher if this girl goes back to India rather than if she stays here. What, what our guest tonight is Suresh Jain, human rights, adv- human rights and disability advocate. Suresh, what uh, what are, um, <clears throat> what do you believe that the chances of this decision being overturned are? Look, we, we've uh, looked at uh, what we've done in the past and just looked at uh, what works for us to make the minister reconsider his decision. Um, what we've found is that signatures on a petition are very, very helpful. So this family has got uh, the signature. I've got a petition out, and I think at last count we were looking at somewhere around about 42,000 signatures on that petition. I would like that to get up to about 80,000. Uh, so, you know, if, if anybody wanted to have a look for a change.org petition that was, uh, that involved a girl named Cheryl Allen. Uh, so it's Cheryl Allen and Florence Allen. If they could just Google that, um, and I think it might be something like don't dismiss my disability or don't dismiss my ability, sorry. Uh, that, that might be the, the heading of the petition. But if we can get people to sign that en masse, that will certainly help us. 
but it's now going to take a fair degree of lobbying through the parliamentarians as well. So that's where uh, the process will have to be conducted. I will do that over the next few uh, weeks, just to, and we're hoping that we will be able to get an additional extension to the bridging visa while we do that, because that just gives us a little bit more time to get all that in place. So we're, we're doing that. We're looking at as many people as can give us letters of support that say that they would be the ones who would incur any expenses that may be incurred by this girl. They would be beating all of those expenses. So once we get that, I reckon that I'm reasonably confident that we would get uh, Peter Dutton, uh, the minister, and Alex Hawke, the assistant minister who made the decision to overturn their own decisions and come to what what I would consider to be a completely humanitarian decision. We, we should point it out as well, Suresh, that, that these these decisions aren't just a, a result of the current government. These decisions no. have gone back for some time. Yeah, look, very much so. It, it, it is completely apolitical. So, you know, we, we can't point to either uh, either one of the parties is applying these decisions in any greater level than the others. Both parties have done it, and they go back to, you know, the, uh, the 40s when these decisions started to be made on the basis of the TV, and then that's been extended and extended and extended uh, to apply to any health condition uh, because the legislation is so widely written. Um, but it really does highlight the fact that people with disabilities are going to be discriminated against in our migration system, and that's what we find completely unacceptable. Getting back to Florence and Cheryl for a minute and their family, yeah. you, you, you've been dealing with them without betraying any of their confidence. How are they, how are they bearing up with all this? Yeah, look, I was with them on uh, Saturday afternoon. I was in Melbourne, um, and uh, I'd gone there for a conference, but took the opportunity to go and meet with them. I met with a number of members of the family. Um, look, they're doing it really tough. They're doing it very tough. I met with Cheryl, had a lovely conversation with her. Uh, she's the, the person with autism. I had a, and she's such a, uh, such a gentle, such a loving person who just adores her brothers and sisters, and in particular the youngest of the of the family who's grown up with her as being his um, elder sister uh, in India right up until about uh, three or four years ago when they came to Australia. So she's been very close to them. They're doing it really, really tough. They're doing it, finding it hard to come to terms with, you know, the country that they've adopted as their own, now applying this very, very draconian measure not to allow their very, very dear sister uh, to have that love going through for the rest of her life. It is just extraordinarily awkward and difficult, and then they know that at some stage they're going to have to confront the issue and start telling her about what is happening up to this point, they've been able to shield her to some extent from that, but it can't continue ad infinitum. We're going to have to confront that issue and look at what options we have, uh, with the most likely one being that they'll all take turns going back home to India to help her there while she's there. What, what I mean, is, is there, in her case, and, and listening to you now, it, 
it does, and I hope in listeners it does make you feel as though you you want to do something to help. Apart from the signing the petition, should we be ringing uh, or calling our local MP or 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 very, Minister yeah, Dutton? Very much so. Yeah, no, very much so. Look, I I think that given that uh, you know the uh, the, the uh, these matters are uh, uh, impacting on a family in Victoria. If we can get some of the local members of parliament, both at the state level and at the federal level, now we know that uh, you know people like Bill Shorten, etc., are based uh, with their um, their um, seats in Victoria. We know that. Uh, um, you know, Jenny Macklin, uh, people like that who are involved in that disability space and have been involved very heavily in the introduction of the NDIS would be supportive and we would hope that they would also all jump on board with lobbying uh, the Minister for Immigration, Peter Dutton, uh, and you know, Peter Dutton's office is in, in uh, Queensland, but nevertheless, I would be ringing, if I could, I'd be ringing his office and just talking to him and just explaining that we would, at least letting his staff know that we would support the granting of a visa to this family because it is just a humanitarian thing to do, and we do live very much in a humanitarian-led society in Australia, and we're very proud of that. And as members of the United Nations, I think that we have an obligation to make sure that we've, uh, we actually abide by the conventions that we've signed in this country. What sort of... Um, what, what... I mean, what can... I mean, how can we overturn this draconian immigration... Yes. sort of act we have currently look that that's a really tough one because what we've got to do and and as i've explained you know it's very much the case that it was based on trying to make sure that we do not have certain diseases like tb brought into this country uh we are supposed to be tb free we're supposed to be measles free etc uh, etc et so it is around those sorts of reasons that we've actually had this this um thing put in place but all, all we've tried to do is to do it in a two-stage process my my initial thought has always been that uh, rather than simply looking at the cost to the taxpayer as a burden, let us look at the net benefit uh, approach to this as a starting point. So what I mean by that is to say, let's look at the amount of tax that's been paid by members of the family on an annual basis into this country's coffers. Let's measure against that the cost to the taxpayer of maintaining a reasonable lifestyle for the person with a disability. Offset one against the other and you'll find that there is no burden to the taxpayer because most members of the family would be paying well in excess of the amounts that are um, actually being looked at by the department when they assess that, when the, the Commonwealth Medical Officer assesses the cost to the taxpayer. Uh, that, that cost will be well and truly exceeded by the amount of tax that family members pay. In some of these cases, some of these people are paying, you know, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars a year in taxation just simply because they're on high levels of income, and that's what is uh, going to should be taken into account when assessing the the net benefit uh, to Australia. At, as a starting point, that's that would be a very good way to go. 
and then over time, let's look at refining that legislation to specify that it is in the case of sickness that we're talking about this and looking at the costs around that in a far different manner than we are doing at the present time. What? So, I mean, you're saying that obviously won't happen soon, but it's it's yep. more more a gradual process once we learn, once we sort of get over the fact that people that people with disabilities are burdens to the taxpayer. Look, it's very much a two-stage process. I think that the, uh, what I'd like to see is that uh, decision-making process devolve down to the department. At the moment, what happens is the department has no choice but to disallow the claim. The department has you know, the legislation quite simply says this person will not be given a permanent residency uh, visa. That person's automatically excluded. So we know that, that the department has no discretion whatsoever. Your next point then is for the tax for the person who's applying to appeal to the uh, to the uh, tribunal, and then the tribunal will come out and say we have no decision making power in this case as well because we can't change the legislation, so they'll disallow it as well. Then you have to appeal to the minister. The process of taking it from the department to the tribunal, the administrative appeals tribunal, to the minister is usually about two to three years and at, at, at a cost of about 20000 to $40,000, depending on whether you use legal representation. So it could be $40,000. It could be uh, two to three years in the making. And the minister will not look at a case unless you've exhausted every avenue of appeal. So you have to go through the charade of going to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, knowing full well that they're going to disallow the claim. So that whole process needs to be re revamped and reviewed so that we can cut all of that department out and the uh, tribunal out and go directly to the minister, because the minister is the only one who can overturn it anyway, and then put some guidelines in place where... At the moment, the only guideline the minister looks at is whether there's a public interest criterion that he can apply to satisfy this person coming into the country. What I mean by that is, if, for example, the person with a disability also happens to be an outstanding athlete, we will take them in. Um, sorry, Suresh, we're, we're running very short time here. Okay. Um, so so uh, apologies for cutting you short. Maybe if you could just tell people how they can best get, get involved in uh, particularly the campaign for Cheryl and Florence. Yeah, look, the best way is to uh, ring their, their local member of parliament, tell them you heard about it here. It's about the uh, Cheryl and Florence Allen. If they Google simply Cheryl and Florence Allen uh, petition, change.org, It'll come up with a petition. They can sign that. We're up to about 42,000 signatures. I'd love to see it at about 80,000. But ring the local member of parliament and say that they would be happy for this family to stay here. Fantastic. Well, th thank you very much for talking to us tonight, Suresh. And uh, wish... Yeah, we'll talk again soon. And wish Florence and, Al wish Florence and Cheryl all the best. Thanks, lady. Talk to you all soon. Cheers. That was Suresh... Rajan, who is a human rights advocate. Now we're running very short of time, but quickly, uh, quickly, there is a there there is a uh, 
fund a film fundraiser for Three CR, which is all about Billie Jean King and the her famous tennis match in the seventies, which was a battle of the sexes. Raphael, have you got any more info on that? Yeah, she was playing <clears throat> Bobby Rigg in 1973. Fantastic. When and we're the, going out with a song. But when is the fundraiser? Very good question, Finn. Very good question. We don't have the answer to that. Never mind. Uh, you can... On the Thursday, 5th of October. Magnificent. We're going out with a track, which is? It's called Closed Door by William Slack, and it's very appropriate in this case. And, yes, and the, the next show is coming up. It's... Well, we don't exactly know what it's called, but it's coming up. So look forward to that. We'll see you when we're back here, whenever that is. Cheers.